Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Tariq Ali, who is a writer, broadcaster, filmmaker, and a major figure in the European New Left. He is the author, most recently, of Clash of Fundamentalisms and is an editor of the New Left Review. He's on the Berkeley campus to deliver the Sanford S. Elberg Lecture. Tariq, welcome to Berkeley. Very nice to be here. Welcome back, I should say. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Lahore um, long years ago in 1943, when it was still part of British India. And then when I was four years old, it became part of a new country, Pakistan, which very few had imagined at that point would ever come into existence. And, and looking back, how, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Well, my parents both came from a very old, crusty, feudal family. Uh, my father had broken with the sort of dominant ideology and politics of that family when he was a student and become a nationalist, a communist, fighting against the British Empire in India. My mother, too, belonged to the same family. Um, and uh, they met up. Uh, my mother became radicalized. My mother's father, curiously enough, was prime minister of the Punjab. Hmm. And even though my father was from the same family, if you like, even from a sort of more superior branch, my grandfather said that his daughter would never be allowed to marry a communist. <laughs> and uh, so there were massive rows going on in the family. They, this young couple were in love. And then finally my grandfather thought he'd impose a condition on the marriage which would be completely unacceptable to my father. He said, in order to marry my daughter, you have to join the army. This was the British Indian Army mm -hmm. imagining that my father never could and he never would have. But then something else happened, which is that the Soviet Union was invaded by Hitler. Mm. And once the Soviet Union was <laughs> invaded, all the communists all over the world decided to back the war effort. So the wedding photograph of my parents is my father looking very jaunty in a lieutenant's uniform. So, so political opportunity uh, made possible the marriage <laughs> in addition to your father's willingness to join the, the army. Where, where, and, and tell us a little about your education, first in Pakistan and then in, in Britain. Uh, well, the choices were limited in those days when I was growing up. And the choice was either to go to a very elite school where the children of the aristocracy and the rich went, and all my uncles had been there. And my parents said, it's a school which wrecks lives. You're not going there. So the only other choice was a school run by Irish Catholic missionaries. There were a whole network mm -hmm. of these schools, uh, which were far more, you know, democratic in the sense that lots of kids from different social classes went there. And that's where I was uh, educated. So one got a, f a flavor of, of Catholicism and Catholic education, but living inside a Muslim country. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you wrote uh, in, in The Clash of Fundamentalism how often in your house uh, had I heard of talk of superstitious idiots, often relatives, who hated a Satan they never knew and worshipped a God they didn't have the brains to doubt. Uh, uh, Tell us a little about that. I know that, that uh, your father, uh, as a matter of form, 
uh, permitted you to have some religious instruction, but but it was really uh, you saw through it, and he saw through it. I gather. <clears throat> yeah, well, you know, one was growing up in a Muslim country. You lived in an Islamic culture. <clears throat> All the noises of the Muslim city were present, so there were no problems on that front. But there were many of us. It wasn't just me growing up who were not believers, um, and. My father at one point got worried, and I, the reason he, he didn't really get worried was, you know, aunts and uncles used to be heard whispering to them when they thought we children weren't listening, at least give these children a chance. <laughs> Don't wreck their lives like you wrecked your own. So my father, who was a very fair-minded man, said, uh, I think you should at least know the fundamentals of the religion, uh, so, um, you know, you know what you're arguing against when t the time comes, and attempts were made to do this. But often I found that the people engaged to educate me uh, were not that knowledgeable themselves. And, you know, one, even as a child, one could see through the hypocrisy, actually. Many of them were discussing the Quran. Uh, when they didn't understand it themselves or what it was trying to say. This was very common in non-Arabic parts of the Muslim world. So the attempts failed, and um, there we are. I mean, I, I, I grew up an atheist. I make no secret of it. And it was acceptable. In fact, you know, when I think back... <clears throat> None of my friends were believers. None of them were religious. Maybe a few were believers, but very few were religious in temperament. How, how do you account for the cosmopolitanism uh, that uh, was so much uh, a part, became at some point a way for you to think? And I, and I want to know how that interfaced with Pakistani nationalism uh, uh, at all, and, and whether you've, you, you, you felt a, a strong identification with Pakistan? Well, you know, we grew up uh, in a town, Lahore, which had been one of the most cosmopolitan towns in, the Indian, in India. Then you had the partition of India, and you had massive killings. This is not much talked about these days, but you know, nearly two million people died as Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs slaughtered each other to create this state. So I remember when I was growing up, and I would be sitting in the back of the car, and my parents were driving, and there was a sadness uh, in the early days, a sort of semi-permanent sadness. Mm -hmm. As we'd pass a certain street, they'd say, oh, God, remember, X used to live here, and X was always a Sikh or a Hindu name. Mm -hmm. These were the ghosts who were mm -hmm. in that city as I was growing up. So it made one, you know, when you realize what had happened, how much killing had gone on, you did ask yourself, was it worth it? And then you had another problem, which was that the Pakistani ruling elite was an elite with so many chips on its shoulders that I call it as one of the few elites with a permanent inferiority complex <laughs> and in regard to India. And uh, it never succeeded in developing a Pakistani nationalism. So that when Britain, France, and Israel invaded Egypt in 1956, Pakistan more or less supported that. Mm -hmm. So they were uh, allied to the West and mm -hmm. were seen as a, a bridgehead 
of first the British Empire and later the United States in that region. So they could never actually develop. And because they didn't develop, we had no respect for them at all. Mm -hmm. So there was a sense of alienation towards this state and its functioning, which in me was very strong from a very early age. I mean, I remember we used to say, wish our Prime Minister had been Nehru of India because he was believed in neutrality, uh, trying to carve out mm -hmm. a new politics, much more interesting. Or Nasser in Egypt. Mm -hmm. We were constantly looking at other parts of the world mm -hmm. for leadership, never in our own land. And, and this, uh, we'll talk about this later when we talk about empire, but, but this problem of... Uh, there being a place like Pakistan or an Iraq which which people judge and evaluate but they don't uh, take into account its relationship to the empire in essence and how that that relationship has gone on over time and has changed what was on the ground so as you're saying that in, in Pakistan there wasn't a real nationalism and that had to do with Pakistan's relations with the world yeah it had to do with the fact that Pakistan very early on <clears throat> three years into its creation decided that it was going to join US and British sponsored security pacts the first of which was the Baghdad pact uh, which later became the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization and it it actually put itself in this part of these worlds strategically. Whereas India, a much larger country, had mm. the self-confidence to talk to Russia and America as equals. I mean, Nehru was a very distinguished uh, mm. uh, politician, respected by both the White House and the Kremlin. And we said, why can't we have leaders mm. like that? Why do they have to hang on? Mm -hmm. to the coattails of the West. But that is the path they chose, and they stuck by it. And the Pakistani army, still in power today, was a central conduit uh, for the exercise of this power. Now, let's, let's go back to your education. So you went to, to Oxford. You were a president of the Oxford Union. T tell us, in, in a nutshell, what uh, that education did to your consciousness and what that education at that time did to your consciousness, because we're talking about the 60s, really. Before I went to Oxford, uh, I went to university in Pakistan, and we were very lucky that the college we were at had a principal who was incredibly enlightened, mm. and he would say to us, within the four walls of this college, Government College Lahore, you can think what you like, mm. do what you like, read what you like, and I will defend you against all authority. This at a time when a military dictatorship had come into being mm. and stopped politics. So we were very lucky. We couldn't go out into the streets, though we sometimes did uh, as a collective. But within the college, the atmosphere was very enlightened, and there were study circles discussing Marxism, discussing Islam, discussing anything you care to think of. So that already was a good training. But then, because I was very active and politically engaged at the time in Pakistan, the gov governor of the big province banned my speaking even in the college, and the mm. principal was very upset he couldn't stop it. And then finally my parents were worried that I'd just be locked up forever if I mm -hmm. stayed there, and they pushed me out. I didn't want to leave the country. Mm. I'm glad I did in retrospect, but I didn't want to. But they basically pushed me out. So I arrived at Oxford, and here you had 
books which weren't available in Pakistan or had been removed from the libraries were suddenly available again. The atmosphere was, you know, very open. And I got engaged with uh, the left groups on the uh, Oxford University campus very, very early on and uh, became very active. And as you recall, the Vietnam War was then beginning. And uh, I was pretty obsessed by that war. It was my continent which was under attack. And so I knew we had to do something about it and got very engaged in setting up or helping to set up the anti-Vietnam War movement in Oxford first and then nationally. And uh, I remember when I did my finals at Oxford, uh, I had a bet with a friend that I would bring Vietnam into every single answer. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you can't do it. And I said, I will do it. And he said, they won't give you a degree. And I said, I don't care a damn. <laughs> so I sat down and did that in philosophy, politics, and economics. And one which drove the, my economics examiner nearly crazy was that there was a question, discuss the cheapest forms of subsidized transport in the world. And I recall writing in that <laughs> that the cheapest form of subsidized transport was the helicopter journeys made from Saigon into the jungles. <laughs> I said the big tragedy was that often the passengers didn't return. Now, now I know you've written a whole book about the 60s, but in, in, what I would like to get is a, is a sense of what you feel is really the, the, the main lesson of that period for you, you know, because uh, we're dealing here now with a problem with we have generations now that, you know, think people who were in college uh, in the 60s were old timers. So so what what that 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 period affected you and, and, and our generation profoundly in what way? Well, I was affected also by my origins and which continent I was coming from. And then I remember Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre decided to set up an international war crimes tribunal to charge the United States with war crimes. And I was one of the people selected to go to Vietnam and find the evidence, uh, which I did uh, in 1967 when I was about 23 years old. And I was in North Vietnam while the United States were bombing that country. So you got a real feel of it. You saw casualties every day. We were almost bombed ourselves on two occasions. And that was very formative, you know, very, very formative. And then one came back to Europe, reported to the War Crimes Tribunal, and a big movement emerged in solidarity with the Vietnamese in France, in Britain. Uh, and in different parts of the world. And I guess the key lesson one learns from that period is nothing will change if you just keep sitting where you're sitting. You have to get up and move and do something, even if there are very few of you for a start. But the passivity, which you know, later overtook the 80s and 90s generations, was very sad to see. Now, of course, it's a different situation again. We have a young generation for whom being engaged is socially acceptable again. For a long time, it was socially unacceptable for young kids to be engaged. Now it's suddenly acceptable again. So it's very, you know, for me, on the big uh, demonstration against the anti, uh, against the war in Iraq, where a million and a half people assembled in London, 
it was a wonderful occasion to see so many young people from the schools coming out and kids inventing their own slogans, which I couldn't even get the references of these slogans. I mean, there's some pop song which goes, Who Let the Dogs Out? Mm -hmm. And the kids were chanting, Who Let the Bombs Out? Bush, Bush, and Blair. <laughs> and I said, this is, what is the, you know, origins of this? Where, and they said, it comes from this song. What song? So it's, it's mm. somehow come, you know, the, 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 the sort of cycle has come round again. And I often wonder what many of my contemporaries who are now serving in half the cabinets and governments of Europe, who gave up on all that and thought... Now the world has changed, it's the end of history, we've moved on, there's mm -hmm. no alternative. How they felt when they saw these amazing demonstrations in the United States, Canada, mm -hmm. Australia, Europe. Uh, I'm sure some of them must have felt a pang of conscience mm -hmm. as they're preparing to go to war. The 60s generation is now in power in most parts of the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. What they felt when they saw millions on the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, the, the, the lesson of the 60s always was be active, be engaged, mm -hmm. and try and understand the world. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something I've not forgotten. Uh, the, the, uh, you, you raise two interesting points. One is this link between consciousness and activism. So let's talk a little about changing political consciousness. And you, you have done that in, in, in many formats, in, in, in film, in television, but, but especially in writing. Let's talk a little about writing and, and the, the link between writing and, and, uh, uh, making known a radical perspective on the way things are. You've written fiction, you've written nonfiction. What, what, what does it take to do that kind of work, and which of the two do you prefer? It's a difficult one, this. Um, I decided to write fiction in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when politics was in the doldrums. Um, very little was going on in reality. And um, I wanted to pose a question which had become important already in the early, late 80s and early 90s, which was why didn't Islam have a reformation like mm. Christianity? Mm. And I thought I would go to the roots of the, the, the problem, where the answer lay, and I went to Spain, which was under Islamic rule from, you know, for four or five centuries. What happened there? And as I traveled around Spain, and I spent months there going to all the towns, imagining things, I just felt I didn't want to write a history. I suddenly wanted to write a novel. So I wrote Shadows of the Pomegranate Tree about the decline and fall of Islamic civilization and how it was defeated. Uh, and that process I, I rather liked. Um, I enjoyed. Um, so when I finished doing that, and the book came out and was well received. And Edward Said then said to me, you can't stop now. You've got to <laughs> chronicle the whole damn thing. You know, mm -hmm. don't just stop at Spain. Mm -hmm. Do it all. So that's how this set of novels I've been working on since 89. It's now known as the Islam Quintet. Three of them have been done. Two more left. But it's a very different way of writing. Because when you're writing a novel, 
you have an idea, and I write stories within stories, and I'm, it's, I'm, you know, I, I go for the narrative. Uh, and yet, often when you're writing, characters come out of you, somewhere within you, which who, who you had not even thought about. And there's a danger sometimes of them taking the narrative mm. away from the way you've conceived it, so you have to control it a bit. Mm. But it's very exciting at the same time, completely different from writing non-fiction. Uh, so it was all the work I'd done on that Islam quintet which actually enabled me to write Clash of Fundamentalisms. Mm. Mm. Uh, and some of that mode of writing came into this book uh, uh, as well, because I'd done so much research on early Islam, the tradition mm. of dissent and diversity in it, that putting it down in this book wasn't that much of a problem. So. I, I enjoyed writing Clash of Fundamentalisms because it was the first non-fiction I'd written for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I wondered whether I'd be able to, but it's different from the non-fiction I wrote prior to the hmm. period I started writing fiction. And, and in what way is it different? Is it well, my, my non-fiction prior to this... <clears throat> because of the period in which it was written, the late 60s, the 70s, the early 80s, tended to be very, how should I put it, uh, very polemical in tone, very ideological, uh, you know, reflecting the period I was writing in and reflecting the, the ideas that dominated that period. And I guess the... Arrogance, that's the other thing which the 60s generation had, was a certain political arrogance, which was reflected in our writings because we hadn't suffered any defeats. Mm -hmm. In fact, we'd scored the Vietnamese had actually won that war, and that victory had also formed our consciousness mm -hmm. that it was possible to win. Mm -hmm. uh, and that informed the way we wrote. You know, we were always looking for victories. And now it's, I think it's more reflective. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's interesting because in, uh, and I'll show your book, The Clash of uh, Fundamentalisms, uh, you, you, you will be making a point and then you go to the poetry of the period. Uh, uh, tell us a little about that. Is it that, uh, and, and this was the case for the reader, but it, so it must be true of you, that there, there is in the poetry an insight that, that, that uh, e e allows you to make a point in a, in a most compelling way. Well, this is, the, this is absolutely the case. And more importantly than that, poets have played a very big role in the culture of the Islamic world and also the non-Islamic world. I mean, if you take the role poetry played in Russia, both prior to the revolution, during it and after it, mm -hmm. that uh, when Stalin had poets executed, the poets who survived have said, the one thing we cannot say about this regime is that it underestimates our craft. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> which, 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 you know, in the West, poetry had become quite sort of anodyne. And, you know, they're very brilliant poets, but they didn't have that central role in the culture. Well, in the Arab world, they did. In the world of India and Pakistan, poets had a very important role. And I think it grows out of the fact that the oral cultural tradition was very strong in that world, and the written word 
obviously predominated, but large numbers of people couldn't read or write. Mm -hmm. But when they went to hear a great poet recite, even if they couldn't read or write themselves, that poem left a deep mark on them. And often these poems were sung by famous singers. Mm -hmm. So they had a very deep impact. I mean, the poetry of Nizar Kabani, which is in that book, mm -hmm. is quite stunning. And it's funny, but just uh, soon after the United States and the occupation armies occupied Baghdad, uh, I had a message from one of the greatest living Arab poets, Saadi Yusuf, who's an Iraqi poet who's been in exile. And he rang me and we met in London and talked. And his poetry used to circulate throughout Iraq, mm. even though Saddam banned it. It never stopped circulating, mm. as was the poetry of two other Iraqi poets, uh, mm. Jawahir and Muzaffar Nawab. And uh, he said Saddam understood the importance of poetry and would often say to us, come to Baghdad and there will be a million people to listen to your poems. Mm. And the blood on my neck guarantees your safety. Mm -hmm. And Saadi Yusuf said to me, when a head of state says that the blood on his neck guarantees your safety, it's not exactly reassuring. So he said we didn't go. Yeah. But, you know, he hates the new occupation, is writing more poetry, yeah. it's already being published in Iraq. And this tradition is very deep in me, because when I was growing up, our house was a venue for poets and writers, and uh, they came in and went, and often, as a very young child, I would be sitting on the floor listening to people, very great poets, reciting their poetry. So I, I, I was privileged, and then you could go to a poetry reading in a big open-air thing, and the poetry reading started after dinner at 9 o'clock at night, a mushaira, and it could go on till the early hours of the morning. And by the end of it, the poets were reciting their poetry extemporaneously, inventing verses on the spot. And the crowds then made known which was their favorite poet. And often poets too close to the government of the day were booed and heckled. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different um, tradition mm -hmm. than is developed in the West. And, you know, when I was writing this book, I remembered all that, and I also know what part it plays. So I inserted it in the book. Now, now that suggests that, that in some ways uh, our uh, modern capitalist civilization or whatever you want to call it is is very inadequate because part of the 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 emergence of uh, uh, and the the consolidation of the American empire is a is a dumbing down is a is a, a denial of outlets and opportunities. So so it would be interesting for you to share with us your insights about uh, the applicability of what you're saying about fiction and nonfiction and poetry as an expression of, of protest and, and analysis of reality when that is being sort of uh, damped down. We're not having those opportunities uh, in the West, not so much as a matter of formal uh, repression, but more a kind of repressive tolerance, as Marcuse would say. Well, I think this has got very pronounced since the 
<coughs> 90s in particular. The 90s of the last century were a decade when dumbing down became the form in most of the advanced capitalist world, mm -hmm. uh, including Britain. I mean, the BBC is still marginally better than most of the American networks, but I use the word marginally because if you live in that country and you see it every day, you see the mm -hmm. big decline mm -hmm. uh, that has afflicted the BBC. Channel 4, which was set up in 1982 to be an innovative, critical television channel. It was set up by Parliament by the middle to end of the 90s had collapsed. A lot of experimental, very good work was done, but then it came to an end, and it's almost as if one can trace this end to the collapse of the communist enemy. Mm -hmm. That with the ending of that, mm. it's almost as if the rulers of this world, the, the dominant capitalist world, decided we don't need to educate our citizens so much. Mm. We have nothing to be worried about. Mm. The, if you educate them too much, give them too many opportunities, make them too vigilant and alert, they might actually turn on us. I'm not saying this is how they thought it concretely, but certainly that's how it seemed to one, mm -hmm. that that's what they were trying to do. So the dumbing down was so sudden that one day the networks were actually quite intelligent, and then six months later, everything mm. had disappeared. There's a very good Hollywood movie about it called Network with Peter Finch, mm -hmm. which describes the dumbing down in American television. Uh, but what happened in Britain has been every bit as disastrous. And it's, you know, to be cynical, I really do not believe that they want citizens in this world to think. Mm -hmm. They don't want that. They, they want a population which is more or less servile, which listens to them, accepts all they say, a population which is obsessed with consumerism and fornication and carries on doing that. That they don't mind at all. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But anything beyond that which challenges them, they more or less stop. And this has affected the way things are under the control exercise mm -hmm. now within television. is shocking, even in things like theatre. I remember in the 60s, 70s, 80s, if you were head of drama at the BBC or Channel 4, you could do what you want. You went with your instincts. Mm -hmm. In the 90s came focus groups and marketing. Mm -hmm. that what you have to do is the thing which gets the highest ratings. Mm -hmm. And so they assumed that the lowest common denominator mm -hmm. is what got the highest ratings. And so they all started doing very similar things. And diversity in television began to die. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in your discussion, I, th I believe it was in here of the Iranian Revolution, you, you actually talk about some of the, uh, when the, the Khomeini revolution consolidated itself, then the emergence of an underground Iranian cinema. Yeah. So, so, so there, you, uh, on the one hand, these systems, whether, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in the Islamic world or in, in, in the empire, if we can make that distinction, you know, both have these tendencies toward repression, but, but, but in a way, there's always still hope. And in, in the case of Iranian uh, uh, cinema, one was seeing the 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 the, uh, the the expression of that dissent, which the regime was trying to deny. This is absolutely true, and this whole vibrancy of the Iranian cinema reminded me very much of some of the movies that were coming out of Eastern Europe 
in the mm. 50s and 60s. Allegorical, very brilliantly done, very intense, saying something which made the uh, viewer, someone who went into a movie house to see these movies, think. Mm -hmm. It wasn't feel good. It was think. What is this movie trying to say? So the actual tone was of most of them, you know, good or bad, uh, whether they worked or not, was incredibly intelligent because they were pitched at a very high level and wanted the cinema goer to think what is the director trying to say. And the contrast with what was happening at that time here uh, couldn't be more pronounced. But, you know, related to that is something else I've noticed that the one big difference for me between, say, life in the United States and life in Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Damascus <clears throat> or elsewhere in that world, there you have repressive regimes, but the, the, char the character of the repression is such that it creates a very vibrant underground life or even everyday life, that if you go into a cafe in mm. Cairo, Mm. or Damascus, or Saudi Arabia, the population, the citizens sitting to each other around a table, drinking coffee and talking, are engaged in discussing everything. Mm. Politics, culture, the latest novel by Monif, etc., the latest novel by Mahfouz, what's it like, is it good, How, what is this corrupt politician doing? That you do not get in large parts of the West now. It's as if they have a, a self-satisfied and complacent citizenry. I'm talking about the majority now, not the minority. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is very different in that world, where people do talk, whether in the privacy of their homes, in cafes, on the streets, they watch, they look. They may be powerless in terms of changing governments, but they are much more alert than many, many people in the West, and that's interesting. Now, you, you raised this question before. It's a central question of, of this book. In other words, why was there no reform, reformation in Islam? Well, I think the principal reason for that was that if you look at the two big regions in times when Islam could have been changed and was, one was the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, from the 9th century to the 12th century. Big, big possibilities. And that was, in my opinion, the peak of intellectual achievement of Islamic culture was in that period, both in the Arab world and in uh, what was known as Al-Andalus. Uh, and this is where philosophy, science, you know, everything was mm -hmm. thrown into the melting pot. And you ask yourself, why? And the reason why it happened that way in this region is that Islamic thinkers had to engage on an almost a daily basis with Christian and Jewish philosophers and thinkers and writers, mm -hmm. that there was this intermingling, mm -hmm. a commingling of cultures, which meant that you couldn't just abuse or cut throats. You had to engage because the governments were not wiping people out. That, if it had been allowed to go on, 
probably would have produced a reformation of some sort which would have changed the way Islam is viewed or views itself. But that was physically exterminated and wiped out by the reconquest when Jews and Muslims, who worked very closely together, were asked to leave the peninsula, chucked out, uh, or forced to convert to the Inquisition model of Catholicism, which many of them did, who didn't want to leave homes. So that affected Islam very deeply. It never totally recovered from that. So that was one big opportunity mm -hmm. gone. The second opportunity was during the Ottoman Empire. Now, this was a great sprawling empire which lasted from the 13th century to the 20th century. Um, and it had many opportunities. It was shoulder to shoulder with Europe. It had the big exchanges. It's <clears throat> but here the domination of the state by the monarchy and the centralized character of the state prevented any independent initiatives. That's the way the state was structured. And secondly, the clerics played a very big role in determining ideology and innovation. Mm -hmm. And for instance, when the printing press came into Europe, there was a reformist sultan in power in Istanbul on the Ottoman throne who said, this sounds to me like a good idea. We should have a printing press. And immediately the clerics and the religious officers came and said, remember Martin Luther? Do you know how many copies of Martin Luther were printed on these printing presses which wrecked Christianity? Do you want that to happen here? And so retreated. And that retreat, for instance, clocks were not allowed in because they said time is circular. You don't need a clock to tell the time when the, uh, the Moisen calls the faithful to prayer four times a day. That's how you tell your time. So all, I mean, and these are tiny examples. But that empire failed to modernize. So that was, one was a blow inflicted from outside Spain mm -hmm. and Portugal. The other was a self-inflicted blow. And that's why we, you know, I, I, whenever I go into that world, I said, yeah, the empire has done, the American empire, the West has done horrible things, but that's not the total explanation. You, you write, uh, you're talking about the Muslim Brotherhood and it, its founder, and you say when Hassan al-Banna, the Muslim Brotherhood, and their numerous successors today, what they can never accept is materialism, not as a school of thought or a doctrine in the narrow sense of the word, nor even a chance occurrence, but as an undeniable reality, something that cannot be altered regardless of who rules the state, thinking people search for truth in matter because they are aware that there is nowhere else for them to search. Comment on what you said there. Is there anything you would add to that? I mean... I, what can one add? You know, for me, it's so obvious as a lifelong materialist that that's how do you understand the origins of life, the origins of the planet, the origins of the universe, that there's no other explanation for it. And while you can totally understand the ancients trying to create their own image in the gods they believed in, and then the emergence of the monotheisms, but in order to find in those times some other explanation which was easy to explain the world. And 
the, the sort of beliefs I was most sympathetic to, I mean at least I understood them, were those who tried to worship nature because that was all powerful, the sun when it mm. came out, mm. the moon, what it did to the tides, trees on which fo food grew. I mean that sort of worship you understand because that's what keeps you living. But then with the arrival of the big three, monotheisms, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, that all began to change and you began a totally different structure. Now the needs for these monotheisms were different but okay they were political needs in my opinion. But the fact that in the 20th and 21st centuries we have people who believe in creationism in this country which is probably the most religious country in the advanced capitalist world. I mean more people here declare a belief in the you know supreme being than anywhere else in 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 in, in Europe, um, or in the Muslim world where they still believe in this. I just find it incomprehensible that this is this that we are still at that stage where the materialism is so evident to me that how can they not believe it? You know, it's 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 beyond reason. It's such a violation of reason and I think in many parts of the Muslim world that's what holds them back. You know, biology can't be taught in many Muslim countries mm -hmm. because to teach it means you give people other ideas. I mean, when I was growing up, the one subject, even in those schools, missionary schools, we were not taught was biology. So, so in, in the end, it, it really is this inability to separate uh, religion and the state in the Islamic world that is the key problem or is the problem of the Muslim world's relation to the, um, to the Western Empire more important? I think it's a combination of both and I think the critique therefore has to be a dual critique both of the empire but also of the failure of these regimes in this world uh, to sort out their own problems. You can't blame everything uh, after all on Western intervention there was a whole period in that world where they could have gone on their own. It's true the Empire intervened to stop them but if they'd behaved in a different way they would have won. I'll give you one concrete example. In the late 50s there was a wave of nationalist revolutions in the Arab world, Egypt, uh, Iraq and there was a real possibility of creating a single Arab entity or a dominant Arab entity, the Arab nation which is, was the dream of all the Arabs and their poets. And there was first a union between um, Egypt and Syria in which the Egyptians should have shared more power with the Syrians instead of treating them as a, you know, as themselves as the domination. Then you had a revolution in Iraq in 1958 and the new ruler of Iraq, Abdul Karim Qasim, was a nationalist and the whole Radio Cairo, Baghdad and Damascus were preaching nationalist revolutions. The Saudi regime was trembling. Uh, the Iraqis proposed one Arab nation with three concurrent capitals, Cairo, Baghdad and Damascus, run as one entity to be funded by Iraqi oil. Now to my mind, if that had happened, it would have taken that world onto a different level altogether in terms of modernization, education of the population, etc., etc. Why didn't it happen? 
people say, ah, oh, the Americans used Israel to hit their nations in 67. That is true, but that was already when the attempt to create a single Arab entity had been defeated. So between 58 and 67, there were real possibilities in that world, which they didn't take for foolish reasons, for reasons of political pride, narcissism, factionalism, stupidity. And we now pay the price for that. Looking at the empire, which is the other uh, uh, side of uh, this clash of, of uh, fundamentalism uh, work uh, that you've given us, uh, where do you see countervailing forces to America's power in today's world? Is, is, is Europe uh, the possibility here, or is it some evolving consciousness uh, uh, emerging within uh, uh, the United States that could ultimately lead to some sort of protest movement <clears throat> within the United States? I think there is no, no single center of resistance. I think as far as the Middle East is concerned, what will determine the future of that region will be resistance in that region itself. In my opinion, over the next 10 or 20 years, it's not impossible that you will have a wave of pretty classical revolutions to transform those countries. The people are fed up. They've, uh, they might go through an Islamist phase. They probably will. They may not. It's difficult to predict. And that resistance is very necessary to as a wake-up call for citizens in the United States. Um, the Europeans uh, are very angry about this recent war in Iraq, but by and large they have never succeeded in uh, opposing the United States since the collapse of communism. Prior to that, they did. The French were completely opposed to the Vietnam War, and no European country was involved in that war. The only backers the United States had on the battleground in Vietnam were a, a few South Koreans and Australians. No European country was involved, and it's mm. worth remembering mm. that. Um, so there has been opposition before. Opposition, relatively speaking, this time is very strong on the ground, very weak above. The French and Germans opposed the war. Once the war began, they wished the United States Godspeed and said, finish it quickly. Uh, allowed airspace bases to be used. No attempt was made to stop it except on a verbal level before it began. So I am very dubious about the capacity of Europe, certainly at the present time, uh, to develop an entity which can be a rival, an economic political rival, which would be very important because that creates the space in which people like us breathe and live. Um, but I don't know whether that will happen. The United States, of course, is determined to diversify Europe to such an extent that it becomes a meaningless entity. And bringing in all these Eastern European states, uh, whoever coined the phrase for them in the old days, satellite states, was very prescient. <laughs> That's all we can say. Yeah. They remain that. Uh, so, so then, a political activist. We've, we've talked about... Uh, consciousness, how it, it, it can evolve, it, it can exist underground in situations of repression. But then what, what is, how do we get back to the link to political 
action to political activism what what will be the the uh, the uh, the fuse so to speak that will uh, uh, create a situation where uh, a consciousness that's evolving, that may be underground now, uh, that is shown in demonstrations, uh, a- actually has political consequences that will uh, uh, change the direction, say, for example, of U.S. foreign policy. Well, I think the f- fuse often comes in ways that are unpredictable. Um, the big fuse which stopped the Vietnam War was the inability of the United States to win that war. And the fact that it was suffering defeats on the battleground and the body bag factor. And I always say to, uh, sometimes when I'm arguing with hardcore fundamentalists, Islamic ones, that what threatened the Pentagon more? A few idiots throwing bombs on it on a building which can be repaired within two weeks. Why should that threaten anyone? It's just an act of stupidity, foolishness politically. And you compare that to the 70s when you had quarter of a million GIs who had fought in the war, veterans on their crutches with their medals, marching outside the Pentagon and chanting that they wanted the Vietnamese to win. Mm -hmm. I said, think, what affects them more? Obviously the latter, because that shows that the core of that state apparatus is infected with ideas which challenge the empire. And I think ultimately that has got to be the root. And, you know, one reads, I've been reading about this lately, that when the United States occupied the Philippines at the end of the 19th century, a whole group of intellectuals, led by Mark Twain and Henry James and William James and Thomas Dewey and all the cream, if you like, of the American intelligentsia, organized the Anti-Imperialist League. There's a massive gathering in Chicago in 1898 or 99. Uh, and within a year and a half, it had quarter of a million members. So, I mean, one, that's necessary for education purposes. What is necessary for what you're asking is some political party. Because if these movements, whether it's the Anti-Imperialist League or anything like them, are not reflected on the level of politics, then they will be ineffective, in my opinion. And what is very noticeable is that this giant anti-war movement which erupted before the war in Iraq, which is unprecedented in world history, wasn't reflected on the level of politics. Mm -hmm. The anti-Vietnam movement was. (coughs) Excuse me. If you recall that movement, I mean, I remember vividly the Senate Foreign Relations Committee under William Fulbright, Mm -hmm. you know, really putting pressure to get the truth. And a whole wave of politicians, uh, democratic politicians, uh, challenging the official view. Since 9-11, it's been the silence of the lambs. (laughs) They've given up the Democrats, Mm -hmm. you feel. Mm -hmm. And sooner or later, if they can't do it, something will have to emerge in this country which does reflect the view of a sizable section of the people. And unless that happens, I think we're doomed. We have to, we have to find ways of doing it. And, and will it be some, some failure of, of the American capitalist economy that is, yeah. that, that, that is the ignition here? 
Well, it could be. It could be. Though, in my view, um, an economic failure becomes a radicalizing force only when an alternative exists. If there is no alternative way of functioning, and people know that, that such an alternative doesn't exist, economic failures, recessions can lead to total demoralization and also see the emergence of very, very xenophobic currents where you find uh, solutions for the economic crisis and seeing which is the minority which uh, we can crush and blaming the problems of the system on, on, on ethnic minorities. That's happened before. So I think an economic crisis for the United States would certainly shake the system. But if a political option or alternative doesn't exist to it, they will recover and pull back. There's no final crisis for these people unless there's an alternative. And the big difference from the 20s and the recessions and uh, economic crises of the 20s and 30s is that at that time, rightly or wrongly, people saw there was an alternative in the mm -hmm. socialist or communist economic system. Mm -hmm. Now that is not seen as an alternative because there's no... So that's the problem we confront and that is what many people are now working towards is to find an alternative to this way of functioning of the capitalist economy, which can win over broad support. And, and where, is, where is, is the beginning of that agenda being written? The beginning of that agenda is being written in the big mobilizations of the movements for global justice, which grew up in Seattle, uh, then traveled across the Atlantic to uh, uh, Europe, then uh, crossed the Panama Canal to Latin America. I mean. Latin America is the one continent which is in complete revolt against neoliberal economic policies. Virtually every country in Latin America has a movement, which is interesting that that's where it's happening. And so the World Social Forum, which meets once a year, is the place where many ideas are being hammered out. Uh, if students were to watch this tape, what, how would you advise them to prepare for the future? I would advise them not to trust their politicians, mm -hmm. and I would trust them to doubt everything mm -hmm. they see on the mainstream media and read in the press, to use their own brains, not to accept what they're given as home truths, to ask themselves, could this possibly be true? always to question and to doubt. I mean, you have a very clear-cut case in front of us. This government went to war to occupy a sovereign independent state, telling its people there were weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. A, and secondly, that Saddam Hussein might give these weapons of mass destruction to Al-Qaeda. Sixty percent of the American population believed in the link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, where none existed. Anyone with the slightest bit of real knowledge would know that Saddam Hussein was a, a complete sworn opponent of Islamic fundamentalism. They hate each other. No one in the rest of the world believes this except in the United States. No one in the rest of the world believed this story of weapons of mass disruption to the same extent as in the United States. It's now turned out to be a lie. There ain't any. And the neocons around Bush are saying, well, so what if we haven't found any? We've got rid of him and brought freedom <laughs> to the people of Iraq. But that so what mm -hmm. is a very demeaning and debasing aspect 
of contemporary American politics today. And unless the citizenry is vigilant and alert, they will carry on doing this. So my advice to students is, I know you're under enormous pressures, financial pressures, pressures to find work. That's fine, I understand that. But if you're not engaged in challenging the lies of the system, what's the good of living in this society? And, and one final question, looking at, at your intellectual journey, what, what one or two themes do you think emerges that, that essentially <clears throat> pulls the, the, the ideas together that, you, that you've grappled with and continue to grapple with? Well, I mean, one of the ideas which played a very big part in my own formation were the ideas of Marx and Lenin, Trotsky and uh, various others when I was very young. And from them one learned and understood that the capitalist system was inherently unjust. And even with the best will in the world, it couldn't become a just system because it was based on the exploitation of the many by the few. That was its basis. And we see this now reaching astronomical proportions both inside the United States and globally. From that we learned that we have to have another system. And I was very critical of the Soviet Union from 56 onwards. Uh, and I saw, I said, this system isn't, I was quite young, but I could see that this wasn't going to work. So what I learned from the failures and collapse of that system is that imposing that form of economic model without levels of accountability at every level, political and economic, is not going to work. So I became a believer in what I call socialist democracy. In my view, far from being the case, that democracy is only compatible with capitalism. In fact, we see now that democracy is becoming incompatible with capitalism. Democracy will be only compatible with a system which is not based on exploitation. And that is uh, something I have believed in for a long time. Tariq, uh, thank you very much for, for sharing this time with us and, and sharing this account of your intellectual journey. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.